Good morning. My name is Keith. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, and I just want to, to reiterate just how grateful I am to be here with you. Um, you know, Dick and I are going to talk a little bit about our purpose. And, um, you know, the uh, sobriety is such a marvelous gift. And uh, behind it is our purpose. And it's basically how we live our life. I was talking to some friends earlier. And, you know, my children were, uh, were three and four when I got sober. And... Um, by the grace of God, neither of them remember me ever being drunk, although they remember all the chaos from the divorce and everything. But, um, but you know, once I surrendered to the fact that I was powerless, that I couldn't run life on my own terms, I began to learn, and I began to learn from my children. And I remember one instance. Um, I had taken the children down to the zoo, and I had made a little picnic, and uh, we sat down by the stream in Rock Creek, uh, and have our picnic. And uh, Kelly's uh, my eldest, and she's ambidextrous and quite an athlete. And, uh, and Kimberly, who was, uh, I, as I told you last night, had a very difficult childhood because of her illness, uh, was not very athletic at the time. And, um, and Kelly ran over, and she picked up stones, and she threw one stone right-handed, one stone left-handed, and Kimberly was watching her, and she went over, and I have a picture of them that day, which I love. Um, but uh, she went over, and she picked up a stone, and she's left-handed, and she tried to throw it, and it went straight up in the air and came down and hit her on the head. <laughs> and, um, and so she looked at me, and she got this determined look in her face. And she, um, she went over, and she began to gather a stack of rocks. Then she went over, and they had little jackets, and she went over, and she got a little jacket, and she folded it up and held it on top of her head. And Kelly picked up one of her stones. She said, Kelly, I need those stones. Uh, don't take my stones. I need those stones. And she began trying to throw a stone into the stream. And after the seventh or eighth try, it somehow got hooked into her finger, and it sailed halfway across the creek, and it splashed. And she turned around holding that uh, jacket on top of her head, and she turned around and she said, I did it, Daddy, I did it. Did you see me? I did it. And I began to cry because here's a kid who was going to do whatever had to be done. And, you know, and I continue to learn from her. And uh, she, um, she was playing soccer. And, uh, and Dick was talking about stopping smoking. You know, uh, my uh, sponsor, Sandy, said to me one day, he said, I said, I don't know, I said, I don't know what God's will is for me. And he said, I do. And I said, what is it? He said, God's will is not your will. And um, so he said, why don't you look at your life and figure out what's going on in your life that would not be God's will for you? And uh, that weekend, I picked the children up. We're driving around the Beltway, you know, the road that runs around Washington, D.C., and they used to argue over who sat in the front seat to be next to me. But this time, they're both in the back seat, so I knew something was afoot. <laughs> and, um, and I hear them whispering back there, and Kelly gave a signal. And together they said, and they had practiced this, they had rehearsed this. Daddy, please don't smoke. You have a right to kill yourself, but you don't have a right to kill two innocent little children. <laughs> So I, I pulled the car over off the beltway, and I said, you kids are right. Get out. 
<laughs> and they said, oh, daddy. And, um, and then we laughed. And, uh, and, you know, and I thought about it. And I did what Dick did. I prayed about it. And, um, and I talked to my friends, many of whom had quit smoking. And, uh, and I thought, you know, this is something I can do for my children. You know, this is, I can show them that adults can change. And so I did. And, and uh, the biggest motivator was, and, and that was uh, October the 15th, 1976. And uh, they learned that adults can change. And to this day, uh, they say things to me. And one other story I'd like to tell about Kimberly. She, um, uh, she had a difficult childhood because of the divorce. And, and when her mother remarried, she married an alcoholic and everything. And, uh, and she was angry with me. And she was angry with me well into her. Although she would come to conferences and things and listen to me speak. She, when she was at Auburn, I spoke down at Pensacola. And uh, she asked if she could come down and bring a couple of her friends and. Uh, 29 of her best friends went with her and, uh, <laughs> and we sat up all night all of them had someone who had trouble with alcohol and we sat up all night and talked and, uh, but uh, she told me she couldn't remember anything that had happened as a little kid she said daddy I don't remember much of anything you know when she was a little girl she was playing soccer and she came to me and said daddy I'm so small I'm not any good and I said I know all about being small I said, but what you can become is fast. And so every day I would go by and pick her up, and we would go down to the CNO Canal after school, and we would run. And pretty soon she's running five miles, which is great for a kid who's eight or nine years old. And she would run for a while, and if I was, if I'd pick up the pace, which you know you do when you run, I was running marathons and things, and uh, and she would reach up and grab a hold of my little finger. And uh, about two years ago, uh, she called me up and she was crying. And I said, what's the matter, sweetheart? She said, Daddy, what's the matter? Is that I've been an ungrateful uh, person. And I said, what do you mean? She said, I was out running uh, with Haley, her eldest daughter. And she said, um, we were running along. And she reached up and grabbed my little finger. And it all came back. She said, you were a spectacular father. Everything you did, you did based in character. And it wasn't because of me. It was because of the power that Dick has been talking about, the power of God. So we do become examples in the lives of other people. It's not what we preach to our children. It's what we model to our children. Uh, my father told me the last time I visited with him before he died, um, I asked a question you're not supposed to ask your father. I got down on one knee, he was sitting in his chair, very, very weak. And I took his hand in my hand and I said, Dad, is there anything we need to say to one another? And he said, no, son, I know you love me and you know I love you. And... Uh, and I kissed him on the cheek, and I got up to leave. He said, there is one thing I'd like to say. And I said, what's that, Dad? He said, I want to thank you for all the things you've done for so many people, especially the people in this family. And I thought about it. My family's riddled with people who are recovering in AA, Al-Anon. 
And uh, I didn't do it. I just happened to be the first one who staggered in here. And you taught me how to model the life of a sober man. You taught me principles by which I could live. You taught me that there was purpose and that there was direction. You did that for me. I didn't do it for me. God put you in my life, and you taught me how to become the man that my father said to me, you're the finest man I've ever known. And my father has wonderful sons, I think far better than me. But he saw where I was, and then he saw where you and God brought me. And it impressed him greatly. I'm Dick Anderson, I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I love when Keith shares. I've heard Keith talk over and over and over, but you never get tired of hearing what God does in somebody's life. Um, we've talked this weekend about surrender when we got here on Wednesday. The, yesterday morning we looked at where this gift came from. We talked all day yesterday about the principles of recovery. We just got through talking about the principles that allow us to be unified and to deal with others and, and to live. But now we're coming to the end result of being able to learn all of those principles to allow God to free us up to be of service. That means that just like someone who's been in training for years as an athlete, now is the time to play the game. Now is the time to get out into life. Now is the time to exercise that power. And this is from As Bill Sees It. Each of us, in turn, that is the member who gets the most out of the program, spends a very large amount of time on 12-step work in the early years. That was my case, and perhaps I should not have stayed sober with less work. However, sooner or later, most of us are presented with other obligations to family, friends, and country. As you will remember, the 12-step also refers to practicing these principles in all our affairs. Therefore, I think your choice of whether to take a particular 12-step job is to be found in your own conscience. No one else can tell you uh, for certain what you ought to do at a particular time. I just know that you are expected at some point to do more than carry the message of, of, of AA to other alcoholics. In AA, we aim not only for sobriety. We try, again, to become citizens of the world that we rejected and of the world that once rejected us. That is the ultimate demonstration towards which 12-step work is the first, but not the final step. We talked about Recovery, unity, and service. This is from AA Comes of Age. We give thanks to our Heavenly Father, who through so many friends and through so many means and channels has allowed us to construct this wonderful edifice of the Spirit in which we are now dwelling, this cathedral whose foundations already rest upon the corners of the earth. On its great floor we have inscribed our 12 steps of recovery, On the side walls, the buttresses of the AA traditions have been set in place to contain us in unity for as long as God may will it so. Eager hearts and hands have lifted the spire of our cathedral into its place. The spire bears the name of service. May it ever point straight upward towards God. In order to serve, I've got to know my purpose. I've got to know my purpose in my marriage. I've got to know my purpose at work. I've got to know my purpose in Alcoholics Anonymous. The big book is filled with um, declarations of purpose. It starts, actually, in the forward to the first edition. 
It says to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. Our real purpose, our real purpose, is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. And in every case where it talks about purpose, it says if we will follow God's lead, if we will follow God's will, that the provision will follow. Both you and the new man must walk day by day in this path of spiritual progress. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. When we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power, and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances. I had gone through probably four or five house cleanings. I'd done all the things I talked about when I shared my story. I had made amends to the church. I was making amends to my parents. I was making amends to people in general that I had harmed in the past. And I still had no idea uh, what God's will was for me. And the funny thing is, I didn't even see the benefit of service or the benefit of purpose. It was only in recent years that I realized how many angels and how many people and how many people in service it took to save my life. The day that I picked up a weapon and got ready to pull the trigger, and God gave me a reprieve, and I got that moment of peace, I saw that scene from Days of Wine and Roses. Days of Wine and Roses was a movie that was written by a member of our fellowship who got sober and stayed sober and died sober. And he wrote that play and that teleplay. And he, he took that play to the general service office where the public affairs people worked with him to make sure that it was an accurate description of an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. There were a number of AAs that worked on that film to make sure that I got the message. And when I came back from Vietnam the second time, a Marine gunny and I sat in the back of a room with our sunglasses on at a mandatory drug abuse seminar. And if you're going to a mandatory drug abuse seminar, you have to have a couple shooters before you get there. And so we had had a couple of cocktails, and we got in the back, and we were back from the NAM, and we didn't think we really had to listen all that much. We had our sunglasses on. It was an overcast day. And, and, uh, and, and we're listening, waiting for a lecture on drugs. And this guy got up and he said, my name is Charles, but I'm, and I'm an alcoholic. But I don't have to drink anymore because I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And Charles was a member just like you and me who had given of his time to go to a military base to do an outside speaking engagement. And he shared enough. And I knew when he told his story that I was exactly in the same boat as him. I just wasn't ready to do anything. But what if he had not been there and carried the message to me so that on that day I went ahead and pulled the trigger? What if J.P. Miller, who wrote Days of Wine and Roses, had not been willing to, to do that film and, and if GSO had decided that it wasn't a good idea and the message didn't get carried to me? What about all those PSAs that I had seen at night which somebody had taken to a, a TV station in Louisville or Lexington or whatever city I happened to be living in at the time? where a member of AA had taken a PSA put together by a bunch of guys in service work up at GSO, and that PSA went to the public service announcement, went to the TV station late at night when I'm watching old movies and sitting and crying when the cows are going to cry. I'd cry at inappropriate times, and I'm crying, and I'm watching some of these old movies. I see this, that old commercial that used to come on there that said, if drinking, if, if drinking is a problem, we have a solution. 
and it was Alcoholics Anonymous. And in the old days when there would be a conference that would come to town, somebody on a volunteer on the committee, and they had a committee that put together the conference, and somebody who was a volunteer on the committee would go to the newspapers, and they would come in and they'd do a newspaper article about how Alcoholics Anonymous worked. It didn't show the people. They used to black out their faces like I showed in the film. All of those people were working together, and it took all of those people and all of that service work. If you're working on a committee, you're working on a a group, you're working in service work, and you think it doesn't make any difference, what could have been taken out of that mixture? I think it took every one of those things to get me to the point on that day when instead of pulling the trigger, I said, God help me, and I knew Alcoholics Anonymous was here. And then when I made that phone call on the street corner, I called, and there was a woman, a live woman, not a recording, not somebody that would send me a brochure, but a live person who knew I was in trouble, and they said they would come out to help me. And if they hadn't done that, I wouldn't be here. And then there was a guy named Ed who was another railroad man who had like a year and a half sobriety who came out and picked me up and sat and talked to me while I had a gun in my lap. And if he hadn't done that, I wouldn't be here. And then there were all those men that worked with me day in and day out for the first couple of years where I was confused and didn't have a job and didn't have a place to stay. And if they hadn't helped me, I wouldn't be here. And... This is how ungrateful I was. This is how my eyes were closed. I didn't see how many people were doing things to help me in the beginning of Alcoholics Anonymous. I just saw the struggle. I knew I wanted to be here, but I saw the struggle. This was the service work. This was the commitment. This is what people were doing to help me. They were fulfilling their purpose in Alcoholics Anonymous. But I got to a point, after going through my inventory where I just needed to know what God's will was, and I was at a retreat of men at Gethsemane, and a priest came out, and he was a... And I, if I had a resentment towards the Baptists, I really had a resentment towards the Catholics because I went to school with a bunch of them, and they had even more rules than the Baptists, and they wore costumes and stuff, and so... And it was a cocky Irish priest, and they seemed like they were the worst, and this priest comes out, and he says... And he said... You boys are always talking about God's will. You know what God's will is? And there were like 15 of us there, and I was like the youngest guy in the the group. And I had just gone through my, you know, root cause inventory. I'd had my spiritual experience. I was starting to feel good, but I still didn't know what God's will was. And none of us knew what God's will was, apparently, because none of us raised our hand when he asked us what God's will was. He said, God's will is simple, smugly. And he said, God's will is simple. God wills to, to do the best you can with what you got right now, one minute at a time, one day at a time. That's it, period. No more nor less. If you don't have it, it's not yours to do with right now. But suddenly a little light started to go on. It wasn't, I was used to cocktail napkin economics. I would write down everything that I wanted. If I wanted that girl over, on, over there, I needed to get this car, which meant I needed to get this job. And I always had a plan and a scheme to get where I wanted to go. He said, God's will is simple. It's do the best you can one day at a time. He said, you've already got a lot of jobs. If you're a brother, your job is to be the best brother you can. If you're a son, your job is to be the best son you can. If you're a husband, your job is to be the best husband you can. You guys got blessed because you got picked. From all the alcoholics that are out there dying, you got picked to be members of Alcoholics Anonymous to have sober lives. God gave you sobriety. So your job is to be a good member of AA, the very best member you can, to give everything you have to AA. And he said... You guys, if you have a job that you love, do it faithfully and honorably and give to other people honorably in that job until God gives you something else to do. If you have a job you absolutely hate, do it honorably and with love and give to other people through that job until God gives you another job. 
If you don't have a job, your job is to get up in the morning and see where you can be of service. Your job is one day at a time. And a little light went on. And he went on to tell a story. He said, God sees us no differently than we see our children. And if you men had two little boys, both of them seven years old, and you gave one a red wagon and gave the other a red wagon, and one of them took that wagon around the neighborhood and spread joy to the other kids and everybody was playing, and the other kid took the red wagon and set it over here and said, I want a scooter, who would you give more to? And that changed my life. A cocky Irish priest gave me the lesson that changed my life. God's will is I was always the guy that took the wagon and kicked it over here because I wanted the scooter. God's will was for me to do the very best I can one day at a time. So if today's will is that I have to stand there and hold my wife while she cries because she just lost her mother and she just lost her father and that's all I can do and I can't say another thing, that's my job that day. And if my job is to stay with some new alcoholic who's throwing up all day while everybody else is out at the Memorial Day picnic having a good time, and I thought I might get lucky because there was this girl I was thinking about meeting over there, but they assigned me to stay with this drunk all day in there and help him throw up all day. That was my job that day. I had to learn early on it wasn't I picked the things that I liked or the things that would make me happy. My job was to be of service that day. And by being obedient to God, something no alcoholic likes to hear, but following God, following the dictates. It doesn't say that God makes suggestions to you. It's follow the dictates of a higher power. I live in this new and wonderful world. I'm given freedom. But my access to the power is based on me being here, doing exactly the right thing at the right time. If I hadn't made amends to Linda Baptist Church, I wouldn't have met my wife. You know, uh, success based on self is failure. Uh, I... um got sober, and uh, one of the fears that drove me was the fact that I grew up in poverty. And I had to be successful, I had to be somebody. And I'm sober about six years, and I'm running my life based on self. Uh, like I said, I've been running marathons, I've done all these things. I gave myself credit for quitting drinking, I gave myself credit for quitting smoking, I gave myself credit for everything. I'm running an organization, and... Uh, I'm really somebody. I would just look in a mirror and bask in my own magnificence. And, um, and, um, and I began to fall apart like a cheap suit because nothing I did was based on moral or spiritual principles. They were all based on self. It was always driven by fear. And uh, I had put an organization together, and one of the things I worried, a lot of recovering people worked in this organization, and one of the things I was concerned about was the fact that we might lose somebody, and uh, so we put together, I put together a system where we could do an intervention if someone was way off base, and guess the first person they did the intervention on was me, and, um, and uh, my sponsor was involved and, uh, and everything, and they decided that, uh, that I needed to go to a treatment center. I'm sober six and a half years. I'm running around the country being an expert. And they said, you need to go to a treatment center. You're horribly depressed, and there's a lot of things wrong and going on. And so they put me on an airplane, flew me down to Texas. Remember Braniff Airlines? Yeah, they, you know, they bought those cheap planes, and they painted them all wild colors. Here I am on a pink airplane going to Texas, and my life is over. And a guy picks me up and takes me to this treatment center. And I get there at 2 o'clock in the morning, and the next morning, I'm so depressed I can't get out of bed. My roommate's a big Texan named Jim. And Jim came over. He said, partner, you better get up. And I said, I can't get out of bed. 
He said, I'll help you. Down in Texas, they help you. And um, so he pulled me out of bed. He's putting a shirt on me. I couldn't even lift my arms. And he said, I know how you feel. He said, I came in that way too. He said, but I've been sober six days. He said, I feel a whole lot better. He said, how long are you sober? I said, six and a half years. He said, oh, no. And he went and got in bed. And, uh, <laughs> And the guy who uh, the guy who took me to the airport was Ed C., the same man who heard my fifth uh, step. And he said to me, he said, you know, a life based on self never is rewarding. And he said, you need a higher power with a name. And he gave me this brown paper bag, and I threw it in my bag. And I got down there, and I, I uh, had thrown this brown paper bag in uh, my nightstand, and one day, in an utter rage, I opened a drawer and I pulled it out, and it was a copy of the New Testament. And I thought, isn't that clever? And in a rage, I said, let's see what you have to say. And I opened it, and I opened it to John chapter 14. I said, do not let your heart be troubled. Have faith in God. Have faith also in me. And then it went on to tell me something that I never knew. He said, I have prepared a place for you. And I thought... I had to spend my entire life making a place for me. If I didn't make a place, I wouldn't have a place. And I, it hit me like a bolt of lightning, and I burst into tears, and I fell out of bed on my knees, and I surrendered in a way I had never surrendered before. I finally surrendered to the will of God in my life. And from that day to this, my life has... Now, there have been a lot of other surrenders. Life, the spiritual journey, is all about surrenders and you know surrender always uh, necessitates action because action is the agent of change and uh, and that includes action in our spiritual lives I was a guy who used to sit around and think about the spiritual life but I never took any action and or rarely took any action my old buddy Mike Way told me when I was real new he said to me you ever read scripture I said no he said, well, what do you read? I said, well, I read a step in the 12 and 12 every day. He said, well, that's great. He said, that's really good. He said, because what happens is he said, you feed your unconscious concepts and principles that when you need them, they'll be available to you. And then a little bit later, I said to him, um, what do you read? And he said, well, I read scripture every day. And I said, what do you read? And he gave me five scriptures, and he gave me the purpose for each one. The 51st Psalm, he says, it tells you exactly what God wants from you. He doesn't want a bunch of stuff. He wants your heart. The 91st Psalm assures you that he'll take care of you. He said, John chapter 17 is a love letter written to you. He said, Romans 8 tells us how we deal in the world. And 1 Corinthians 13 tells us what AA tells us. And that is that love is a fundamental principle upon which we should live our lives. He said, unselfishness and love. And um, so we would read those constantly and discuss them. And what it does is it feeds, feeds your spirit. So if I'm trying to get spiritual in my brain, I'm in a ratty place. I'm in a place that's concerned about one thing, and that's me. But what I must do is feed my spirit material that I can... I can function on. I have one other experience about surrender that happened to me at about 12 years. I had a thing about women 
And, uh, you know, as I said before, women had phenomenal power in my life. And I treated them very poorly. I treated them, as Dick was talking about, just like things. Things that were there to satisfy and make me happy. And I ended up in another one of those relationships. And it ended the way they always ended, because I was selfish and self-centered, and it was about me. And, uh, and I'm at my buddy Bob Brown's house, and, um, and I'm in a guest room. And he had a little two-bedroom house out on a golf course. And, uh, and uh, my buddy Dick Corcoran came in uh, later that night, and so he got the sofa. And Dick had always been a, one of the rocks in my life. And, um, and I was just agonizing over the fact that I had done it again. And uh, I got on my knees and I began to pray. And I made a commitment to the God of my understanding that I would never use another woman for selfish purposes and reasons again. And I promised God that night, it was July the 5th, 1985. I promised God, well, it was the night of July the 4th, but I promised God that I would never use another woman, and I committed to the fact that I was going to remain celibate. And I was going to use the energy I used satisfying my own selfish desires by working with new men. And um, that night I met the woman I'm married to today. And I was able to keep that commitment to the God of my understanding. That's why I'm convinced we have the relationship that we have today because it was based upon principles that I was finally forced to accept and I was finally forced to take action on. They're principles of my higher power. And, um, and that was also uh, the month that I got Tom I to be my sponsor. And I was so much into self, I said to Tom, I said, uh, what do you want me to do? You want me to write another fourth step, do another inventory? And he said, I've got a feeling you're good at that. He said, my sense is you spend a lot of time thinking about Keith. And he said, I want you to go find a new guy and get to work. So that night I went down to the uh, German Street, down to the club. And uh, a guy walked in who wasn't blinking. And uh, I said to him, "Uh, buddy, is this your first meeting? He said, yes, sir, it is. And I said, my name's Keith. I said, around here we assign sponsors. I'm your sponsor. And, uh, you know, and I sponsored him. I sponsored him for a number of years until, uh, unfortunately, in 1991, a drunk driver wandered across the center line and hit this man head on and killed him. He died a sober man who knew God and knew God very, very well. This whole program is based on principles, and it's about making commitments to principles. I'm convinced of that. And whenever I'm in trouble, I figure out what kind of commitments I need to make, what kind of things, I, what kind of actions I need to take. And Dick is going to suggest that you make some decisions about some actions that you're going to make. Yeah, we, we've done this with smaller um, retreats, but if the point of this 
retreat is for us to get together and just to feel good and to pat each other on the back. It's very little use. But if we can take what we've learned here this weekend, and I don't mean, we're not really the teachers. We learn, you know, I mean, I've had several experiences this weekend that have opened my eyes about things. It always helps me. And when you're sharing, you always remember what God has done for you. You know, I can go back to being a curmudgeon, but I can't share up here without being very, very grateful for what God has done for me. But I did a retreat just two or three weeks ago, and what we did at the end of it was we had a small enough group that we could share, but we actually, in writing, listed actions we could take to be more fit to be of service during the following year. And some of the guys, it was finances, getting out of debt, um, learning how to deal with their wife because they didn't have a purpose in their relationship. And some, it was making repairs. If you're still struggling with the drink, obviously you need to just stay right in there and, and, and keep working on the steps of recovery, and all of us do. But there is some action that we can take to be of more service. This is not the forum for us to everybody get up and make that statement. But I would ask that each of you actually make a commitment in writing and give it to your sponsor, whatever. And if you don't have a good sponsor, find a sponsor to give it to so that next year you will see if you have grown. And bring it back here. We don't have to do it formally, but you become, if you are growing, and if this group of men is growing, the power that's going to come out of this group is going to be tremendous, and it's going to affect a lot of other men and a lot of other people in all of our lives. So we'd ask that you would do that. The whole purpose of us being here this weekend is for us to each walk out of here so that we can be of better service to God and the people about us, our families, those that we love, those that we care for, those that we work with, the guy at the convenience store, somebody who's having a bad day, that we become a carrier of the message that there is a God, he loves us, there's hope, and he gives us principles to live by that allow us to have the power and the dignity to live well on this on this earth. So um, that's really our purpose here this weekend. What I would suggest is we go ahead and take a, a break now, come back, and then we're going to open up to questions and answers or remarks or anything else that you want to share, and that will allow us to close and then I understand that Dan's got a, a closing there's a closing thing here that uh, is a good thing I don't know what that thing is but it's a it's a good thing <laughs> all right all right thank you